is love. Therefore, he created the angels with freedom to choose. And so what happened? How did Lucifer use and exercise his freedom of choice? Ezekiel 28, 15, it says, You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till what? Iniquity was found in you. Iniquity is the same thing as lawlessness. What does it mean? So he was perfect until lawlessness, until iniquity was found in him. In other words, this perfect angel by the name of Lucifer began to resist and to reject the love of God. And as a result of rejecting God's love, it created a vacuum, an emptiness in his heart. And that emptiness that was first filled with the love of God was, was now began to be filled with self-love, which is really what lawlessness and sin is. Because when you think about it, God's law is the law of love. And, and, and so lawlessness would be equivalent to lovelessness. If love is the fulfilling of the law, then a lack of love results in lawlessness. And so Lucifer began to rebel against the very law of love in his heart. And what happens, friends? What is the opposite of love? Not so much hate, friends. The opposite of love is selfishness. Why? Because the chief characteristic of love is selflessness. And so when you get rid of love, you are now filled with selfishness. And so Lucifer began to get caught up in himself. And notice his fall from heaven. In Isaiah 14, verse 12 through 14, very familiar passage, it says, God is asking a very important question. It says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine where? Heart. So here we find God is about to tell us why Lucifer, this glorious, beautiful, perfect angel with freedom, fell from heaven. Because he began to say something in his heart. What did he say in his heart? I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. What is he repeating over and over again? I will, I will, I will. Friends, the battle between good and evil is over the will. God's will versus I will. And Lucifer Instead of doing God's will, he wanted to do his own will. And what was his will? He wanted to exalt himself and his throne. He wanted to sit on the sides of the north, and he wanted to be like the Most High. In other words, Satan had an eye problem. He was short-sighted. All he could see was his own glory, his own self, and he forgot that every gift that he had and all the beauty he had and wisdom he had came from God. He started to attribute all those things to himself. And so because of his own pride, he lifted up himself. And when Lucifer said he wanted to sit on the sides of the north, do you realize what he was saying there? He was basically saying, I want to dethrone God and I want to be God because, friends, God is the one that sits on the side of the north. In fact, notice, write it down. In Psalms 48, verse 1 and 2, beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the what? North, the city of the great king. You see, it's where God's throne is. That's the sides of the north. 
And so when Lucifer said, I want to exalt my throne at the side of the north, he was basically saying, I want to be God. I want to, I want to dethrone God, and I want to be God. And so because of pride and selfishness, Lucifer turned himself into Satan. And that word Satan literally means adversary. What does it mean? He became the adversary of God. He coveted God's power, but not God's character of love. And this is what caused him to fall from heaven. You see, Lucifer had a problem with God's throne and the king that sat upon the throne. And, and friends, when you think about a throne, a throne implies that there is a kingdom. Isn't that right? And a kingdom has a king and a government. Every government has laws. And the laws of a specific government reveal what kind of government that is, if it's a just and fair government or if it's an unjust government. In other words, the laws show you the character of the government, the kingdom, and most of all, the king that reigns over his government. So when you think about it, when Lucifer had a problem with God's throne, he ultimately had a problem with the very foundation of that throne, which is the law of God. He had a problem with the law. How do we know? Because Psalms 97 verse 2 tells us so. Notice it says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of what? The foundation of God's throne is righteousness and, and justice. Because our God, the king that sits on the throne, is a righteous God, and he is a just God. So in having a problem with God's throne, Satan had a problem with the righteousness and the justice, which is the foundation of the throne. But here's the next question. How do we know what righteousness is? What is righteousness, or where is righteousness revealed? It's revealed in the law. Notice Psalms 119, verse 172. It says, all thy commandments are what? Our righteousness. So if righteousness is the foundation of the throne and righteousness is revealed in the commandments, that shows that Lucifer had a problem with the law of God, the commandments, which is God's righteous standard, his law of love. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? And friends, something interesting, if you look into the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place of the sanctuary, you'll find that this Ark of the Covenant, it represents the throne of God. Isn't that right? We studied this before. It's a chest-like piece of furniture. It's covered with the mercy seat. On the mercy seat sat the Shekinah glory. It was a symbol of God's throne. But just beneath the mercy seat, under the throne, was the law of God, the Ten Commandments, which shows that the very foundation of God's throne is His holy law of love. Can you say amen? And friends, you remember the Shekinah glory sat on the mercy seat, and there were two angels on either side of the Shekinah glory. These two angels, guess what they were called? They were called covering cherubs. Do you remember what Lucifer was ordained to be? A covering cherub. In other words, here's the point. Lucifer was held the one of the highest positions right next to God. He was one of those angels that sat right next to God. And his responsibility as a covering cherub would be to look into the very presence of God and to reflect that glory to the other angels. His position was to uphold the holy law of God's love. But the very angel that was ordained to uphold God's law of love 
began to rebel against that very law, he would come out from the presence of the king and he would spread lies to the other angels concerning what he saw there in the presence of God. And so, he had a problem with God's throne, thus having a problem with God's law, which is the foundation of the throne. And friends, as a result, he fell from heaven because of his rebellion against the law. And we're not going to go into heaven while we are rebelling against. If, say, if Lucifer was kicked out of heaven for rebelling against the law, what makes us think that we're going to enter into heaven by doing the exact same thing? So he fell from heaven. But he didn't fall alone because misery, what? Loves company. And so in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, it tells us that his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. Lucifer was successful in gaining one-third of the stars to join him in rebellion against God. Now, what do those stars represent? They represent angels according to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20. Revelation 1.20 tells us that the stars represent angels, and so he was successful in getting one-third of the angels to join in rebellion against two-thirds of the holy angels. Here we find Revelation Star Wars. A battle began in heaven. And friends... That's good news that Satan only had one-third because for every evil angel, we have two good angels on our side. Can you say amen? We're on the winning team, friends. Don't ever forget that. We may look like the minority in this world, but if, we are, if we're on the Lord's side, we're on the side of the majority, we're on the winning team. And so fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But notice, what did Lucifer used to cause a third of the angels to join him in rebellion. What did he use? He used his what? His tail. And what does that mean? Does the devil have a literal tail? Is he some type of red creature with horns and a pitchfork and a goatee? Is that what the devil looks like? <laughs> of course not. That's Hollywood fantasy foolishness. The devil, uh, uh, Lucifer, is a glorious, beautiful angel. And so this tale is not a literal tale, but notice what it represents. In the book of Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 15, please write it down. Isaiah 9, 15 tells us that the ancient and honorable, he is the head, and the prophet that teaches lies, he is the what? So the tale represents the one who spreads and teaches lies. And so with his tale, Lucifer began to tell tales about God, telling lies about the king and lies about what he saw when he looked into the Shekinah glory as the, one of the closest angels of heaven. He went out to the other angels and he began to spread a false report because in his heart he had a problem with God's throne. He began to verbalize that which was in his heart. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So he began to spread lies concerning God, planting seeds of doubt in the minds of the angels, perhaps asking them, why does God have to get all the glory? He's a selfish God to require us to worship Him. I mean, man, His law is so restrictive. I mean, we don't need God's law in order to be holy. We're already holy beings. It's too restrictive, this king. Let's break out and do our own thing. And he, he was successful in deceiving the angels causing them to believe that his way was better and that they would be a lot freer and happier. His selfishness was, was verbalized as he began to spread lies. This is the origin of gossip, friends. It happened in the very presence of God. And, and unfortunately, gossip still happens in his presence. 
in his very church. And friends, don't ever forget that. When you gossip, whose example you're following? Following the example of Satan himself, who split the congregation in heaven because of the lies he began to spread. You see, what Satan, what Lucifer ultimately wanted is that he wanted the worship that belonged to God alone. He wanted to be God, friends. And how do we know this? Because when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, his third and most powerful temptation was this. He said to Jesus, look, I'm going to show you the glory of the world. And he said, I'm going to give you all of this if you bow down and worship me. And friends, the reason why that was a strong temptation is because Satan knew and understood why Jesus came to the world. He came to redeem the world, to buy it back. This planet that had been hijacked by Satan, the Messiah would come to get it back. And here's Satan as the prince of the world says to Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross in order to redeem the world. Just bow down and worship me and I'll give it back to you. You can spare yourself a lot of suffering. You can avoid the cruelty of the cross. All you have to do is bow down and worship and I'll give it back to you. This is the height of folly, an angel asking the creator to worship him. But that's, Satan couldn't help himself. He basically verbalized what he really wanted. He wanted the worship that belonged to God alone. He wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to be God. But I'm thankful, friends, that Jesus didn't fall for that. Jesus did not take the easy road. He went the way of suffering because Christ understood that the only way to conquer the hearts of his rebellious children was not by force, but it was by the power of love. Amen. And so Jesus said, it is written, Satan, you should worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. And he overcame. He overcame. Friends, worship was the issue at the beginning of the great controversy. And it will be that, that, that same issue of worship will, what will end the great controversy. It's important for us to understand worship in order for us to be on the winning team. And so now as we go back to heaven, how was it that God would respond to this? Tell me, friends, did God know exactly what was taking place in His very presence in heaven? Yes or no? Did He see the rebellion that began to rise? Yes. But how did He respond? Could God have destroyed Lucifer right there and then when the rebellion first rose its ugly head? Yes or no? Yes, he could have nipped it in the bud. He could have stopped it right there in its infancy, but he did not do that. Why? Because God is love, and love is wise. You see, the reason why God did not destroy Lucifer from the very beginning of the rebellion is because God saw that by destroying Lucifer, that would not have destroyed the influence that he exerted amongst the angelic hosts. And the reason is this, because Lucifer deceived the other angels. The, many of the angels thought that Lucifer was on to something, that, that perhaps he was raising some legitimate questions and that, that he was, really had their best interest in mind. And so to destroy Lucifer without the angels understanding the true nature of that rebellion, that would have caused them to question the judgment of God. Because Lucifer came like a wolf in sheep's clothing. He hid his selfishness under a pretense of goodness and unselfishness. 
the angels were deceived. And so, if God destroyed Satan, doubts would have risen in the hearts of the other angels. Why? Because not comprehending the nature of sin, they would not have seen the justice in the punishment for sin. And friends, what is the punishment or the wages of sin? It is death. But if they didn't understand the, 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 the crime, the hideousness of the crime, they wouldn't have seen any justice in the punishment. Death would have been looked upon as a harsh punishment. They would have thought, man, the punishment just doesn't fit the crime. I mean, what crime was there anyway? Lucifer was just asking questions. And after, ever after that, they would serve God out of fear and no longer out of love. They would have thought to themselves, we better not question God like Lucifer did, otherwise we will be destroyed too. And thus, as a result, love would have become an impossibility. Satan's influence would not have been eradicated. When Satan issued the challenge and claim, God's reputation and credibility were at stake. Eradicating the opposition wouldn't have answered the challenge, but rather it would, would have proven the challenge to be true. God would have been looked upon as one that was trying to cover up something. And so, instead of outward eradication, God sought to eradicate evil from the hearts of His creation where the seeds of doubt was sown by Lucifer. And so for the sake of the entire universe, God must allow sin to run its course. Why? So that all might see for themselves the horrific nature of sin and rebellion. Lucifer, who became Satan, must be exposed as a liar as he really is. And only when it's demonstrated that Satan's way brings disaster. Well, people see that God's way is truly the best way. And thus we find Revelation's response of love to the lies of rebellion. Satan is kicked out of heaven, given some time to prove if, if his way truly is better. And what happens when Satan is kicked out? Notice what it says, Revelation 12, verse 12. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down unto you, having great, what? Wrath. Because he knows he hath but a short time. You see, the devil knows that his days are numbered. His know, he knows that probation is almost finished for him. And so, filled with wrath, he is seeking to take all with him in his coming destruction. He knows that his time is short. Now, it's interesting. He knows his time is short. God knows that time is short. It's the human race that thinks we have a lot of time left. But no, friends, time is almost finished. So Satan, Lucifer, kicked out of heaven to the earth. Now, did God create the world as a dumping off place for Satan? Did God give to Satan absolute dominion over this world? Not at all, friends. The Bible teaches clearly that God made Adam and Eve, the human race, to, be, uh, to have dominion over this world. And Satan only had access at the forbidden tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, you can eat of all the trees of the garden except for this one in the midst. You shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. And friends, why did God restrict the tree and told his children not to eat of it, it's not because the fruit was poisonous, but rather that was a test of love. In placing the tree there, God was preserving man's freedom, freedom to choose. You see, God made it clear to His children that love was to be the basis of their relationship with Him. And they, He wanted them to know that there was no force 
that if they didn't want him, they didn't have to serve him or, or follow him. And God did all he could to warn and protect his children from the tempter. He assured man of his love for him and that he had his best interest in mind. But unfortunately, Eve ventured on forbidden ground and she began to talk to someone she should have never spoken to in the first place. The Bible tells us that, that Satan, in the form of that serpent, began to plant seeds of doubt in the mind of our first mother. And I want you to notice the method of how he did it. In Genesis 3, verse 4 and 5, the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. But what did God say? You will surely die. So here we find Satan contradicting the Word of God. And by doing so, he's basically calling God a liar. He's saying to Eve, Eve, don't listen to God. God is lying. He, he, you're not going to die. He's just trying to scare you because he is a selfish God. He's a tyrant. If you eat this fruit, you're not going to die. Well, what's going to happen? Verse 5, for God doth know. What is Satan doing? He's pointing his finger at God. He says, God doth know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. In other words, Eve, the reason why God said not to eat of this fruit is not because you're going to die. You're not going to die. The reason why he said not to eat of it, because God knows that when you do, your eyes are going to be open. And he doesn't want your eyes to be open. He wants to keep them shut. God knows that when you eat, you're going to be just like him. You're going to be like God. And God does not want you to be like God because he's a selfish God. He's withholding something from you that's for your own good. He doesn't really love you, Eve. He's holding something back from you. You're missing out on all the fun. And isn't that what he says to us today? Especially young people, he calls us to look at Hollywood and the glitter and glamour of the falling stars. He says, wow, you're, you're missing out on all the fun. But when you think about it, God said to his children, you can eat of all the trees of the garden. God was so generous. He wasn't restrictive. But notice how Satan caused God's law to look so restrictive. When God said, you can eat, you can have everything except for one. That was generous. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you say amen? But he makes sin look so appealing. Your eyes are going to be open. He makes it look so beautiful, and it make, he makes it look so innocent. What Satan is doing, he's attacking the character of God. The same thing he did in heaven, he does to Adam and Eve. And unfortunately, Eve bought the lie, bit the fruit, and gave it to her husband. And mankind, in doing so, joined the enemy in rebellion against their king. He, he, they joined them, friends, and, 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 they, and Lucifer or Satan promised that, they, that their eyes are going to be open and that they're going to be happy. But, friends, were they happy? No. Why? Because now dominion over this world is now transferred into the hands of the enemy. And because of this sin, Lucifer, who became Satan, is now prince of the planet. He is now the God of this world, the Bible says. He claimed that his way was better than God's way. We believed it, and thus the seeds of rebellion were planted in our hearts. But was he really right? Was there life in sin? Was there happiness in sin? Was there joy in sin? Absolutely not. You find immediately sin brings sorrow and pain. 
anxiety and stress, sickness, disease, decay and death, sin all of a sudden brought suffering and guilt and shame and death. It brought all these things the exact opposite of what Satan said would happen. And friends, do you know why sin brings death? It's not so much because God is angry and He just wants to punish us and get back. No, friends, not at all. The reason why sin brings death is because sin separates us from God. Sin cuts us off from the source of life. God is the source of life. And when we're cut off from life, the natural result is death. God is also the source of peace. When we're cut off from peace, the natural result is anxiety and stress. And so sin is what brought the suffering. And it came from listening to the lies of the serpent. But I'm so thankful, friends, that as soon as there was sin, there was a Savior that stepped in. And when He stepped in, do you know what He did? He not only took our sin, but He also took our suffering upon Himself. The Bible tells us that God came in the cool of the day, and He came to the garden investigating, and he asked the question, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? Friends, do you think God knew where Adam was? Then why is he asking if he already knows the answer? God is asking because he wants Adam to think about where he is. Basically, the question was, Adam, do you know where you are? Adam, do you know where you are in relation to me? At first, they, were, they had a face-to-face -face relationship, but now sin has caused Adam to feel uncomfortable in God's presence. And so in asking Adam, where are you? It was an appeal from the king to come out of his hiding, to come back to him. Adam, where are you? And I believe the same question God asks each one of us today. My brothers and sisters, God is asking you, where are you? in relation to me. Are you hiding from God because of the sin, and the guilt and shame that it's brought? But God is saying, come to me. And after Adam came out of hiding, God asked Adam, Adam, what happened, Adam? And you know what Adam does? Instead of taking responsibility for the sin that he had chosen, he says to God, God, the woman, <laughs> she tempted me and I ate. He is blaming his wife for his own sin. But who gave the woman to man? God did. So really, the implication is that Adam is blaming God. He's blaming his wife. And he's blaming God that gave his wife to him. And one wife said that, yeah, mankind has been blaming his wife ever since the Garden of Eden. <laughs> Here we find, friends, that sin not only separates us from God, it separates us from each other. That wife that he loves so much, he now blames for his fall. This is the origin of domestic conflict. Sin is what brings separation in relationships. It's not just a, a difference of opinion, friends. The root problem of every marriage is sin. Sin brings separation. Sin in either one or both parties. And so, he blames the wife. 
he's really blaming God. God comes to Eve. Eve, what happened? And she follows the example of her husband. She says, the serpent beguiled me, and I ate. But who made the serpent? What's the implication in that statement? The serpent you made, God. In other words, here we find mankind, as soon as there's sin and suffering, they're now blaming God for the sin and the suffering that they're experiencing. And ever since the beginning, mankind, the human race, has been blaming God for sin and suffering in the world. But you know what God did? God came. And even though his children were naked because they were cut off from the glory of God, God provided coats of skin to cover the nakedness of their bodies. And friends, in order for Adam and Eve to be clothed with the covering of skin, an innocent animal had to die. That's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The innocent dies so that the guilty can be clothed. It's a symbol of Christ who, when hanging upon the cross, died in excruciating agony and pain, completely naked, exposed, as they stripped him of his garment. Jesus died naked so that we could live clothed with the glory of heaven. Amen. As soon as there was sin, there was a Savior, and I, I love this part because, you know, God does not wait for man to come to Him. God takes the initiative, and He searches for His children, setting a precedent in Eden that He would follow ever after that. He would be seeking after man, chasing man, running after man, when in reality man should be seeking and running after God, but God is the one seeking after us. The Bible says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. It's following us. Why? Because we're walking away from it naturally. We're running away from God, but God is pursuing us. He's chasing us, and He will never let us go. So Adam and Eve, they blame God. Man has been blaming God ever since for suffering. But who's responsible, friends, for the pain? Who is responsible for the innocent lives that are being taken who is responsible for every tear that we have ever shed and every sorrow we've ever experienced? It's not God, friends. It is an enemy that has done this. And we are partially to blame because we have listened to the lies of the enemy. Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Notice the sequence. He steals us first away from God, separates us from God so that he can kill us and ultimately destroy us. And that's what the thief has done. But I'm grateful that the verse doesn't stop there. The rest of the verse says, But I am come that they might have life and that they might have it. How? The thief has come to destroy you, but don't worry, my children. I am come to your rescue. I'm come to restore life. Not just an ordinary life, an abundant life. Not just a mundane, boring life, but an extraordinary, exciting life, a life of faith. Jesus came to this world to restore life. And how did he do it, friends? By becoming flesh, sinful flesh, as the Bible says. The light of the universe stepped down into the darkness of our world. This planet that was in rebellion against him 
He came, brothers and sisters, to his own. He wrapped his divinity in the injured garments of humanity, human flesh. And he came to dwell among us. He wanted to be close to us, and he wrapped his divinity in our humanity so that he could become close to us, so that we would not be destroyed by his glory and the, and the divinity. He came, friends, born in a barn, in a little manger, with the animals. Every earthly monarch should have been there to welcome the King of Kings. But what a welcome we gave to the King when He came to visit us. No one was there, friends. Everyone was sleeping. Only a few humble shepherds and some wise men were there to welcome the King of Kings. But He didn't mind, friends. He came not for earthly glory. He came to give spiritual grace to His people. He came to restore life. He grew up in the ghetto of Nazareth. That's the ghetto, friends. That's the bad part of Bakersfield that Jesus grew up in. And he grew up in this, in this area where there, there, there was crime and violence and sin all around, and yet he grew up in the midst of filth, untainted by it all, just like a lily. Growing up in a swamp full of bacteria and dirt and muck and mire, but that lily blooms in that swamp so pure and so delicate and so lovely. That's why Jesus is called the lily of the valley. He grew up in, a, in the midst of filth, but he was not contaminated by it. He is the lily of the valley. Jesus knows what it's like to be brought up on the wrong side of the tracks, friends. You may be thinking to yourself, man, I grew up in a terrible family, a terrible environment. And Jesus knows what, what that's like. He was teased by his peers in school, misunderstood by his own family members, and at the right time begins his public ministry. He goes out to bring healing and relief from suffering and pain. The Bible tells us that he is a man of sorrows. He is acquainted with grief. He knows our pain and suffering firsthand. He's experienced it in his own flesh. Friends, I want you to think about it. It was as if God was coming to the human race and saying to us, Oh, my children, you are suffering because of your sins, and it's too heavy for you to carry it, so I have come to carry it for you. Please give it to me, my children. You can't handle it. I've come to take it off your shoulders. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He's not indifferent to the griefs and sorrows we bear. Jesus Christ subjected himself to the taunts and temptations of, of Satan. And in the wilderness, when Satan had the home field advantage, Jesus still won the mighty victory over sin. The second Adam overcomes, whereas the first Adam had failed miserably, and Jesus overcame sin not by his own power. He didn't use divine strength of his own. If he did, he wouldn't be our example. He used the same power that's available to each and every one of us when we're tempted of Satan. He used the power of the Word of God. He said, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God and through his victory, our victory is a guaranteed by faith. Can you say amen? And finally, after three and a half years of loving, patient ministry, Jesus would go to the cross so that through death, he would destroy him that had the power of death. He was born simply to die, friends. 
And on the cross in Gethsemane, before getting to the cross, he took the sins of the entire human race upon himself. And my sin and your sin was so heavy that it was literally crushing the life out of Christ. In Gethsemane, the capillaries in his pores burst open as Jesus began to sweat blood. And medical science has shown that when a person experiences an extreme case of mental, emotional, psychological agony, they can actually sweat blood. And the Bible tells us that the life is in the blood. So it's as if as sin is, is being placed upon the sin-bearer Jesus, the sin with the guilt, the shame, the condemnation, and the suffering that it brings, it was so heavy that it was crushing the life out of God. And as the blood flows, the life is given to humanity. He is dying to restore life. He has come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Oh, my friends, are you thankful for the, for the king that came to die for you? Have you ever felt lonely and forsaken? Have you ever felt like, man, no one cares about me. No one takes any notice of me. Have you ever been rejected by someone you love? A parent, a spouse, a child? Have you ever lost everything? Have you ever felt like giving up, tapping out, throwing in the towel? Have you even felt like, man, God can't even love me. God has forsaken me. Have you ever felt like that? Well, friends, Jesus was tempted with all those feelings while on the cross. He was rejected by his own children. And he was forsaken by his own father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father was there, but he had to hide his face from the son because sin separates us from God. And as Jesus takes our sin, he is now separated from his own father. And on the cross, he felt like this is just not fair. It's not fair, friends. He didn't do anything wrong. He's innocent. Why do the innocent suffer? Why did Jesus have to suffer? He's innocent. He's suffering for us. He's taking our debt, paying it in full. But after going through all of that, he made a comeback. He didn't stay dead. Early Sunday morning, the first day of the week, the angel descended and moved that stone that, that, that was blocking the tomb like a little pebble. And that angel called into the place of the grave, that prison of death, and he said, Jesus, Son of God, your Father calls you. And that Lord Jesus Christ came up out of that tomb, and he lives today. He came forth as a conqueror over the grave, as a conqueror over death. He went through hell, but he made a comeback, friends. And because he made a comeback, you can make a comeback as well. From a devastating divorce, you can make a comeback. From alcoholism and drugs, oh, you can make a comeback. You've lost your loved one and your heart is broken. You can make a comeback from that, friends. From a serious illness, cancer, depression and suppression, financial difficulties, whatever the case may be, you can make a comeback because Jesus made a comeback. You know, sometimes in this life we feel like this guy, beaten down by the world, but Jesus wants to restore us by his love. Amen?
Sometimes we feel ourselves slipping off of the mountain of faith into the valley of discouragement and doubt, but Jesus wants to bring us to the top of that mountain that we might stand as victorious, as more than conquerors through him that loved us. We can make a comeback, friends. I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what you've been through in these past years, but this we do know, that God's grace is sufficient for us in every trial and difficulty we experience in life. Amen? The war has, been, is, has already been decided, friends. Jesus won the victory at the cross, but the battle still rages on in our own minds. And the reason why we are still in the great controversy is because God is giving his people time to choose who they're going to serve and which side of the battle they're going to be on. You see, friends, we are all born on a battlefield called planet Earth, and we must choose which side we're going to be on. And there is no middle ground. It's either we're with the Lord or we're against him. And if we're with him, we will have to endure suffering just a little bit longer. But through the pain, remember the promise of the Lord. In Isaiah 41, verse 10, we're almost finished. The Bible says, let's read this together, shall we? Fear thou not. For I am with thee, be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. God says three times, I will, I will, I will. That's what Lucifer said, right? Lucifer said, I will, I will, I will. But God says, no, I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I will be your strength. I will be your God. I will be the one to uphold you in your darkest hour. Don't ever forget, my friends, when you look back at your life and you only see one set of footprint and you're tempted to think, God, where were you in the most darkest periods of my life? Never forget that those are not your footprints. You could not walk through that experience. Those are the footprints of Jesus. He's the one that carried you through the darkest hour of your life and the darkest hours of your life that you experience in the future he is the one that will carry us all the way home amen I will friends God is too wise to be mistaken God is too powerful to be defeated and God is too kind to be unloving when you cannot trace the hand of God trust the heart of God for you when you cannot see God's hand working in your life, trust that infinite heart sees, hears, knows, and understands your pain. And soon and very soon, he's going to turn it into joy. He's still the God that calms the storm, but he doesn't always calm the storm every time. He doesn't always change your circumstance, but he always calms us in the midst of the storm. He says, peace be still, and sometimes the wind ceases. But sometimes it still blows hard, but the, the wind that is blowing in our hearts, it ceases. He can give us peace in the midst of that storm. You see, sometimes God opens the Red Sea and places a plain path before our feet for us to travel. But he doesn't, he doesn't do it all the time because sometimes God wants us to walk on water like Peter did. So whether or not he opens the Red Sea and provides a plain path before your feet or he gives you the strength to walk on water, it matters not because God will bring us safely to the other side. Can you say amen? And then it says in Psalms 119, 71, it was good for me to be afflicted. Why is it good? So that I might learn your decrees. Friends, another reason why God allows suffering is because it's good for sinful nature to learn the decrees of God, to become acquainted with the sufferings of Christ. And then my last verse, second to the last verse. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says, For our light affliction, 
which is but for how long? Not an eternity, a moment. Is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And so I want to encourage you, friends, to hold on just a little while longer. But for a moment left, and soon the sky will split open. Soon Jesus will come, and when he comes, the battle itself is going to be over. Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. His wings are clipped. He's exposed, and God will win the victory. And when that happens, it says that affliction will not rise up the second time. The great controversy is ended. Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe is clean, and one pulse of harmony and gladness beats through the vast creation. From him who created all flow life and light and gladness throughout the realms of illuminable space. From the minutest atom to the greatest world, all things animate and inanimate in their unshadowed beauty and perfect joy will declare that God is love. How many of you want to be on the winning team of this controversy? I want to invite Sister Hope to come to share some hope with us. She's going to sing a song as I share this last story. Some of you heard this before. Oh, let it touch your heart again this morning. Story about a man by the name of Thomas Dorsey, a gospel musician. In the 1930s, he lived in a little apartment in the city of Chicago. And in his early days, when he was unpopular, he, uh, he wasn't so much well-known, but he was very poor, and his wife was nine months pregnant. When he received a telegram inviting him to play in a band in St. Louis. But his wife was nine months pregnant and the baby was due any, any day now. And, and he wavered whether or not he should go. But they really needed the money. And so he made the decision to go on that train to head to St. Louis and play in the band that night. And it was the, a decision that he would regret for the rest of his life. After the show was finished, Thomas Dorsey descended the stage. Someone placed a telegram in his hand, and it said, You are now the proud father of a little baby boy. But we're so sad to inform you that your wife has passed away in giving birth. When he received the news, you can imagine how he felt. His heart was broken. He felt so guilty for leaving his wife all alone. He got on the train heading back to Chicago to the hospital to see, to see his son, tears streaming down his face. He should have been there when his family needed him the most, but he wasn't there. He arrived at the hospital, only to learn that the baby died shortly after that. He lost all of his family at once, and he fell into a deep depression. The darkness was so dense. Everything that was, any, that, that was meaning, that, that, that meant anything in his life, everything, his family gone in a moment. For the next two weeks, he couldn't sleep. He couldn't eat. He could not be comforted. The suffering was so intense. And he was asking, God, why did you allow this to happen to me? It felt like no one could understand it. Oh, the darkness. There was no light in sight. After two weeks, Thomas Dorsey sat at the piano and a tune came to his mind. He began to play and he's thinking about his family now. The tears begin to flow again. 
And then all of a sudden words came into his mind. Words from God. His father was comforting him in his pain. And as these words came, Thomas Dorsey began to write these words down and he penned the words to the, uh, this most glorious and beautiful song, the words that he received in the darkest period of his life, the, the, the words of the song, Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I'm tired, I'm weak, I'm worn. Through the storm and through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, and lead me home. When my way grows drear, precious Lord, linger near. When my life is almost gone, hear my cry, hear my call. Hold my hand, lest I fall. Take my hand, precious Lord, and lead me home. In this dark experience, shown a light from the throne the light of the precious Lord that enabled Thomas Dorsey to make it through the darkness. And today, that hand is extended to you, my friend. And I invite you as hope sings to bow your heads and close your eyes and take the hand of the precious Lord by faith and let him lead you through the darkness of your experience today. Listen carefully to the words of this song. burden that you would like to come and lay at his feet maybe you're going through a dark experience and you need special help you have a special request you'd like to bring to the Lord Jesus maybe you're unemployed and you need a job God cares about that maybe you're sick you have cancer or diabetes or some illness and you need healing maybe it's mental healing maybe you're depressed Maybe you're filled with anxiety and you need relief. Maybe your marriage is being attacked and you need God to save your marriage. Or maybe you have children that are crazy 
and you want to intercede for them. If you have a special request this morning, if you need a miracle, God has many of those. I want to have special prayer with you. And I invite you to come down to the spiritual altar in the front. If you have a special burden, maybe everything's going good in your life, you can remain seated. But if you need help, if you have a request, I invite you to come now and lay that burden at Jesus' feet as we get ready to pray and close this service. Come and lay your burdens at Jesus' feet. God knows why you're coming. He knows what's going on in your heart. He can read your thoughts. Prayer is not for us to inform God, but rather prayer is for God to transform us. It's a way that we unload the heavy burdens and pick up His peace. I want to invite the rest of us Maybe you don't have a specific request, but you just want strength for the journey. I invite you to kneel, if you're able to, where you are, as we join these who've knelt down in the front as we close with prayer. If you're not able to kneel, go ahead and remain seated and kneel down in your heart as we pray. Precious Lord, thank you, Lord that your grace is sufficient. Thank you for being so precious. Lord, we don't have the words to express our gratitude for the fact that you came to restore life when there was nothing but death. Thank you, Lord, that you traded our lives for yours. You, was, you were treated as we deserve so that we might be treated as you deserve took the death that was ours that we could have your life we thank you that by your stripes we are healed and Lord we kneel down before your holy and righteous throne acknowledging our need of healing some of us need physical healing and so we pray for those who are going through physical difficulties those who are sick we believe that you're the gentle healer the great physician, we pray that you'll touch us physically and bring healing where we need it in our physical bodies. Others need mental and emotional healing. We're plagued with migraines or perhaps plagued with anxiety and stress. But Lord, you promised us in the word that you would give us perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. So Father, would you please grant us peace, perfect peace even now release us from the anxiety and stress and help us to know Lord that everything's gonna be okay when we put our life in your hands Lord we want also want to pray for those who are struggling financially those who need jobs Lord you are the shepherd that provides for the sheep we pray Lord that you'd open doors of opportunity and that you give us a faith to trust you with our finances Bless those who are struggling in that area. Lord, we also want to pray for the marriages that are being attacked by Satan. Lord, we pray for our spouses. First of all, we pray that you'd make us the spouse 
that you want us to be, the husbands and wives you want us to be. We pray that you restore our marriages and make every marriage here a foretaste of heaven on earth. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to humble ourselves before one another, that we might ask forgiveness and extend forgiveness, that there will be healing in the home. We pray for our children in the church and in the world, wherever they are, Lord. Please save them because we cannot imagine heaven without our kids. It's not going to be the same without them. Save our kids, our loved ones, Lord. We pray that you'll send angels to minister to them. Send your spirit to convict them. We pray that you'll write their name in the book of life and may nothing blot it out. Ultimately, ultimately, Lord, we are asking that you'd save us from ourselves. Make us ready for your coming. Would you please hear and answer all the silent and unspoken requests. And as we get up our, our feet, help us to never let go of the hand of the precious Lord. Lead us home, dear God. Lead us home. In Jesus' name we pray this prayer. With all of God's children say, Amen. As we go back to our seats, why don't we sing together, precious Lord. All of God's children said, Amen. 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 God is good. Amen.